Well, let me invite you to open up to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. And I'll, I'll also, uh, as, you're, as you're looking that up, give you um, a report from the, uh, the Brister family who were in Louisiana. Daryl was pre- preaching in their uh, previous church there as he's over to do some other training and see family and et cetera. And, and I got texts from him and I got texts from Barbara. And, and um, he uh, texted me and said, my wife says I preach too long. And his wife texted me and said he preached an hour. And I think the other text said that his mother-in-law said he preached an hour and a half. I'm not sure about that last one. But uh, anyway, I, I gave him some encouragement and told him I was always on the preacher's side. So uh, remember Daryl and his family tonight. All right. Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him. How long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forests, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring to the dung gate and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. 
I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gate burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words of the king that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem uh, the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? You are rebelling against the king. Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Amen. May God bless this reading of his word to our hearts and lives. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we ask that your word would be open and that it might teach us, instruct us, feed us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we examined Nehemiah's prayer in the first chapter. So there we heard his petitions as he laid them out to the Lord. Bad news had come to him from Jerusalem, and it arrived to his ear around Thanksgiving. Jerusalem had been attacked, and its gates were now smoldering ashes. And Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer to the king, was cut to the quick. He was moved to fasting and to prayer. He persisted in his praying before God. Our text opens this evening in the month of Nisan, the beginning of the Persian New Year, which was around the date of our Easter. And so for four months, Nehemiah had persisted in his prayer to God for Jerusalem. And all prayed up, he was ready for his rendezvous with redemptive history. Nehemiah approached the king with a startling petition. Verse 1 tells us that the cupbearer's countenance was provocative to the king. I took up my wine and gave it, took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. It was New Year's. Everybody was celebrating. And nobody was more popular than the king's private bartender. And so he was there and he should have been part of the festivities. And instead he was pouring cold water on the whole thing by the way his face was set, by the look that he had on his countenance. He was the spoil sport and the downer in what was supposed to be a happy and festive occasion. And so the king made a personal inquiry of his servant. The king did not have to do that. He had no duty or responsibility to make his cupbearer happy. As a matter of fact, the shoe was actually on the other foot. By going into the presence of the ruler with a face that was sad, not only was he liable to be fired, he was liable to be killed. And so the question comes, 
Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And so we learn that Artaxerxes has something of a degree in psychology. He can read faces. He can draw conclusions. <coughs> Excuse me. He knew his cupbearer well enough to know when all was not well with him just by looking at his face. And his servant Nehemiah responded, Let the king live forever. And then he lays out the core of the problem for the king in just a few words. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? What's interesting is Nehemiah is all prayed up and he's all thought up as well. He has spent his time reflecting on the dynamic of what will happen when he raises this issue in the most appropriate and effective way with the king, of which he knows, as he steps out in faith and trusts God to rescue his people as God has promised in his covenant of grace. But yet at the same time, he never mentions the name Jerusalem. He's careful to refer to the city indirectly in the text, by implication rather than by name. And so... He deals with the king in a deferential and respectful and wise way that is least designed to get up his ire or to provoke wrath. And he responds to the king's questioning, and he does so with respect. For example, when he says, let the king live forever, he's making not just a formal statement, but he's expressing loyalty to the king. And why would a Jew, why would a son of Israel, who's off in exile, who's in captivity, why would he express loyalty to the king? Either it's out of subterfuge, that he's, that he's lying and misleading the king, that he's just using and manipulating him. Or, and I think more rightly, given the character of Nehemiah, he recognizes that in his time and place, loyalty to the king is his responsibility. That it's a function of his loyalty to God. That he respects the office this man is in in spite of uh, aspects of his living because of his loyalty to God first and foremost. Verses 4 and 5 continue in that same vein. What are you requesting, the king asked? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Here he is dialoguing with the king and dialoguing with the king of kings and lord of lords in prayer. He shoots a prayer like an arrow up to heaven and he looks for the blessing of God in this situation that he and his people face. His life is now on the line. He personally hangs in the balance. But Jerusalem... And the restoration of Israel hang in the balance. And even more than that, the flow of redemptive history, the hope of the coming Messiah, salvation to be accomplished, and the good news to be announced to all the world pivots just on this moment. And so in it, he trusts in the Lord. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, 
to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. Oh, the king comes back with a third query that implied royal favor. Artaxerxes was persuaded by this appeal to reverse his policy. He said, and and the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I have given him a time. The Lord had worked in the king's heart. Was it just the personality of his cupbearer that he normally enjoyed the presence of? Was it a move of hand of the queen grasping his hand that he might know that she favored a blessing and generosity and kindness in this case? The text doesn't tell us. But whatever on the human plane was used in order to change the king's mind and motivate him, even if it was two or three cups of alcohol before the question was made, the reality is, is that God is showing himself to be the sovereign Lord and he's raising up and casting down nations and he's turning the head and the heart of the king as the sovereign one over all the earth. Oh, Nehemiah approached the king with a startling petition and he received a wonderful answer by the grace of God. Nehemiah laid out his plan for the king. He laid out his great plan. A clear timetable was given. Uh, The king was concerned not just that he go, but that he also come back. He wanted to see this man again. He wanted his continued servitude uh, in his house. Nehemiah had visualized the operation in some detail. In his time of praying, he was also thinking. He was chewing the cud of this whole matter. He was laying it out before the Lord in prayer. He was looking for the path forward that God in His providence had opened up. And when the occasion came, he asked for letters, one for safe passage and the other to secure timber for the gates and for the city wall and for the house. Without safe passage, permission to leave the king would be of no effect. Uh, Without the timbers, they could not rebuild and he would arrive and succeed in nothing. Nehemiah didn't have just a romantic dream about going to the city of his fathers, but he had a well-thought-out plan bathed in prayer and submitted to the powerful and almighty providence of the sovereign God. And Nehemiah followed through. He followed through with his great plan and accomplished a great performance. He traveled across the empire. Verse 9 tells us, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. It's not just that it was a long journey and he needed protection from marauders. He needed more protection from the officials who worked for the king. And a letter might be challenged as forged, but a letter plus a guard, armed guards, a military escort, that would swing open doors and smooth the way all the way to Jerusalem to the glory of God. Oh, the officers and the horsemen doubtless made quite an impression. And it was necessary if the king's change in policy 
was to be believed. But at the same time, his arrival and his journey irritated the influential and the powerful. Verse 10 says, But when Sanblat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now those are funny names, aren't they? I don't think there's anybody in the congregation that's going to name their child Sam, Sanblat the Horonite and our Sanballat the Horonite. And there's a good reason. He was governor of Samaria and his name meant the moon god who gives life. Don't name your children after moon gods. His sons, however, interestingly, were named after Yahweh. And so here we see that he was the perfect quintessential governor of Samaria. He was a syncretist. On the one hand, he sprang from the worshipers of the moon god. On the other hand, he was enculturating. And so he would name a child or two after the local deity in that place. Tobiah, the Ammonite, was also a man of political posturing and syncretism of a religious sort. He was governor of Ammon, east of Judah. And his name meant the Lord is good. So he had a good name. And again, his family name and ancestry point to religious syncretism with surrounding cultures, which lasted for another 200 years in that place. But you know, the Lord, He can handle the sand ballots and the Tobias that are in our lives. He can handle these powerful figures who who try to rule and, and to manipulate and to control, who syncretize and try to fool our hearts and that of our children. Yes, they were irritated and they were powerful, but God was determined and more powerful. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem and And he does not immediately present himself and explain his plan and why he is there. You would think that he would come in to accolades and and declarations of glory and longing and his vision triumphant. No, he comes in quietly and he inspects the city by stealth. Verse 11 says, So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night. I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my father, what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode, and I went out by night. And so, this one who was a cupbearer of the king, who was blessed in his requesting by Almighty God, with favor with the king, who had traveled all that distance with an entourage, he went out and inspected the city not in the light of day with others following him and the press corps in tow. No, he went at night and inspected the condition of Jerusalem's walls by stealth. On the one hand, he did not need to speak out of ignorance. On the other hand, he did not want to make a dramatic show. Instead, he began his work quietly, secretly, by dark of night. In that way repelling both interference by his enemies and even by those who were established in that place, albeit so tentatively. The success of the endeavor 
was too important to spoil with grandstanding and personal attention. And let me just say in passing that that's so very often true in the kingdom of God, isn't it? Here we are in the unfolding pages of redemptive history. Here we are at an absolutely crucial point if they can't get those walls up, if they can't get those gates set, if they cannot defend and protect themselves from the surrounding marauding nations, then they are toast and they will simply be absorbed by those hostile forces. And so quietly Nehemiah goes. Quietly he does the important work, the most important work of the kingdom at this point. By the dark of night, this lets us know that we must adapt our methods to the task at hand. And it's oftentimes in the little things. Maybe even at times the unseen things that everything turns and matter the most. Nehemiah knew this truth and so he went about the Lord's business by stealth. But it's not just that he's kind of fuzzy-eyed and sleepy and he's riding around on a horse. It's not that he doesn't really gather information. He inspected with scrutiny each one of the gates. Verse 13, I went out by night, by the valley gate, to the dragon spring, to the dung gate. I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. He goes up one way and then another He goes by the valley gate, the dragon's well, the refuse gate, the fountain gate, the king's pool. He sees all of the major entrances into the city which lie in ruin. He circled them all, quietly inspecting their condition and need of repair. And the rubble that was there after the attacks that had been sustained were such a mess that he could not even circle the whole city on horseback but had to circle back and return by the way that he had first come. Nehemiah inspected. He inspected with scrutiny. He was a thorough civil engineer. And he inspected in silence. Verse 16 says, And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. He had not told the highest in the land. He had not told the lowest in the land. He had not told anyone but the Lord his God. And he went out with the Lord looking. And he inspected in silence. The city was in terrible and vulnerable disrepair. And Nehemiah kept his counsel. And he put the final formulation on his plans. Only then did he announce them to even the Jewish officials of the city. But when Nehemiah made an announcement, boy, did he know how to make an announcement. He made a great announcement, a grand announcement. He spoke the plain truth to the people. Verse 17 says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Now from our point in history and enjoying a knowledge of the text, not just in chapter 2, but the whole of the book, 
and the history of Israel and the triumph of the kingdom in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we look at this and say, hey, it's a no-brainer. Get your axes out. Get your shovels out. Get your mortar out. Let's start working. But remember, they had been defeated. They had tried and tried and tried again. And here this one who had not undergone suffering, this upstart cupbearer from the king comes and he makes this announcement of what they're supposed to all do. Nehemiah was careful in his announcement, however, to let them know that he was not off on a fancy flight. He, he injected a good dose of reality. Castor oil was the first thing they got to swallow. A clear and unambiguous statement of the fact that the situation was dire and that they must do something in order to save themselves in the city. You see the bad situation we're in? That Jerusalem is desolate and its cities are burned by fire? You know, it could be that the outsider announcing this fact which stands around them seems almost incredible. But it's true, you know. My wife and I moved into the city of Jackson, Mississippi. We, we bought a house. We bought a house in a nice neighborhood, and it was an unusual house. It was on an odd-shaped lot, and it was one of the last houses to be built in the neighborhood, and it was designed and it was built by the state horticulture um, architect for the state of Mississippi. The yard was fabulous. Uh, there were some, there were over 100 different species of plants that were there in the yard. There were azalea bushes, there were rhododendra, you named it. The trees were all there in their varieties. It was a great little backyard. And the house was respectable enough. When you peeled back uh, into the attic or, or looked behind the walls, uh, you found some unusual things. I, I think there were there were more leftover parts from state of Mississippi building projects than any other house in the neighborhood. But, you know, it had for some reason been decorated years before and it had remained in this state of decoration that was fairly dated. (coughs) One of our friends came over and they said, you know, you need quickly to take pictures and write down your concerns of everything that needs to be changed. The gold wallpaper needs to go in the bathroom. And, you know, uh, uh, some of those beads that are, that are separating one room from another, you need to take those down. That's, that's kind of 1970s. And, and really, yes, this is a split-level Brady home, but you, you need now before you can no longer see it to get it all down in black and white or you never will change, make the changes you need. You see, we're little finite creatures, and we accommodate, we normalize even the most gaudy and ugly of circumstances. And so Nehemiah was speaking to an audience that had lived daily with disarray and difficulty. They, they had normalized these piles of rubble in their mind, and so it was important that he draw clear and firm attention. But he didn't blame them. He spoke to them in the plural. He let them know what they were facing. All together, we. It's true, you see, sometimes the Lord's people are asleep at the wheel. 
we're sheep and sheep often are so busy eating grass that they hardly lift their heads to look around them and see what's happening in the world. The dose of reality was a wake-up call to the sons of Israel. Their situation was dire and it was worse than they could admit to themselves. They were accustomed to subjugation and vulnerability and oppression. They needed the perspective of the covenant of grace of the holy God because the Lord had the purpose for them of restoration and renewal, of repentance and reformation. And so Nehemiah calls out, wake up, wake up. You're called to better things. And we need to remember that no matter how difficult our circumstances may be on the outside, with plummeting oil prices, with fear of our jobs, with difficulties in studies or school or relationships one with another or misunderstandings or tensions on the outside, or how difficult they may be on the inside, racked by oppression and temptation and discouragement and distraction, having fallen down on on our daily routine of seeking the Lord in prayer or reading His Word or loving and caring one for another in Him, no matter what the circumstances, we need to hear this call. We need to hear the high calling that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ that we receive all that we need for Christian living from Him. Every grace, every gift, every fruit, every adornment that we need that we might glorify His name. The church needs to feel that deeply. So We need to see His great provision. And one of the simple ways to put what Nehemiah was saying to them, I put to you, do you have your eyes open? Do you see? Do you see what is before you? Nehemiah called for unity on this occasion. He did speak in the plural. He was a southerner. He said, see things... This is a bad situation that we all face together. He recognized the unity of God's people and their need to put divisions aside and to find their commonality in the Lord and in His work He'd set before them. God is one. And so His people should be of one mind and one heart. That means we have to give up some of our preferences and we have to give up some of our points and opinions. We can state them. We can encourage them. But at the end of the day, we... Seek together to serve the Lord. Nehemiah, calling for unity, also proclaimed his purpose. He announced to them what they were to do. He makes the punchline, the call. He closes the deal by calling them out of their darkness and into light to come with him and to labor together to rebuild. Oh, they responded And the Lord blessed. But the reactions, of course, were varied. The most important reaction was that of God. Verse 18 says, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and of the words that the king had spoken to me. He recounted the hand of providence and the work of the Holy Spirit in his own life, that God had led him to this point, that God had brought him there, that God was in this thing and therefore they should be as well. He was pointing to God's great covenant of grace. He was pointing to the fact 
that they were not alone, but God was with them in moving history to the appointed end of salvation, full and free. God was pleased with His plan. And so they should be as well. And the king was pleased. He had letters. He had escort and guard. The perverse, however, they would have nothing of it. They were not with God and they were not with Nehemiah. They were not with God's people. They were not with God's covenant, but rather against it. They were perverse in their attitude and actions. And in future weeks, as we look at the balance of Nehemiah together, we will see of their wiles. They did what they knew how to do best. They lied. They lied. And they said, what is this thing you're doing? In verse 19. Are you rebelling against the king? That's one of those questions which is less an interrogative and more of an accusation. They are accusing and condemning. And it lets us know that they are still powerful and to be feared. But God was with Nehemiah. And God was with His people. And so their reaction in His providence was a breath of fresh air. Let us rise up and build, they said. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. The people of God knew better than what the perverse were saying. They put their hand to the plow. They began the good work. And God was pleased and blessed and glorified them, even though they labored under the most difficult of circumstances. And so I ask you tonight, what about you? Will you put your hand to the plow? You know, there are a lot of things that need doing in the kingdom of God. There are a lot of things that need doing in this outpost in the kingdom of God. Will you respond like the people of God did of old? Will you say, let us rise up? Will your hand be strengthened? Will your heart be encouraged? Or will you listen to the perverse? Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we ask that you might guard and protect us. We pray that you would help us not to listen to Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, but rather that we might listen to your word and to our God. Help us to labor in your kingdom, to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.